So we're getting into a passage of Dan. By the way, I'm, my name is Nathan, um, and uh, I have the privilege of preaching one of the hardest passages of Scripture that I've ever had to study. So thank you very much, Greg. Appreciate it. Um, all right, so um, Daniel chapter 9. Greg opened us up last week in the first half where uh, Daniel's praying for him, himself, and his people as they're still in the midst of captivity in Babylon. Um, And now we're going to get into God's answer to that prayer um, in this second half of of Daniel. Um, Now, why this is so such a difficult passage um, to really understand, number one, and then apply, is that uh, you're going to see this as prophetic words that God's going to speak to Daniel. Okay, and prophecy is God's spoken word to his people through someone. Um, and uh, we see prophets and prophecy throughout the scriptures, some of which we've seen unfold and come true accurately and precisely, and some that is yet to be fulfilled. And we're still in that time because uh, we're still all breathing today. Okay? And there's still things to be done, and God's kingdom uh, is still at work in our world. So... Here's the deal. I, I am uh, by no means saying that I'm a professional um, Bible scholar. Uh, I understand a little bit, and there's a lot of mystery still out there that I'm still un, um, digging through as I study the Bible day in and day out and ask the Holy Spirit to give me understanding. Um, but the good news is I have it all figured out, and uh, today I'm going to tell you when the end of the world is going to happen, um, when Jesus is coming back again, and the date to get ready for. That was sarcasm. <laughs> that was sarcasm. Um, just a little piece of advice. If someone does say that and they're trying to be serious, uh, you sh- there should be red flags and rockets blowing up all over, and you should be going, all right, God said that we don't know the day or time, um, and this person does, and they're not Jesus. We should have some questions there. So, that's just a bit of advice on the side. Uh, Dr. Uh, Chapel, that we've been using one of his books, uh, when I was going through a master's program, he was one of the professors that I got to sit under. Uh, brilliant guy. And so this book that we're using, um, he wrote about the book of Daniel. And this is one of the quotes that he said um, as we get into chapter 9. He said, Through centuries, preachers and commentators have scratched their heads and debated each other about what the 70 weeks of Daniel represent. We're going to get to that in in verse 24. I recognized I was out of my depth in trying to figure out what has caused centuries of debate among our best Bible scholars. If even the best minds struggle to explain this passage, then I am not embarrassed to admit that I cannot with certainty explain all of these mysteries, period. Okay, so uh, I don't know if anybody remembers, I preached a few weeks ago and actually quoted Daniel saying he was perplexed and sick to his stomach because he didn't understand what God was saying. Now I get to preach on a passage that Bible scholars throughout the history of the world don't have final answers to, all right? So um, I'm excited by that challenge to some degree because it forces us to focus on the main things and not the secondary things, okay? The main thing being... We need Jesus. We're broken and messed up and sinners. If you're sitting here today and you have not submitted your life to Jesus Christ, you're on the outside looking in. 
And you can argue all kinds of worldviews and thoughts and philosophies about, well, maybe Jesus isn't the answer, and maybe um, God the Father is not the creator of all things. Okay, that's your argument against God's truth. Okay? If you are a believer, you have submitted your life to Jesus, we cannot walk around being so arrogant to think that we have all the answers to every detail of what's happening in our world because I'm not the savior of the world, you're not the savior of the world, and we need to lean into Jesus. He is the main thing. He is our savior. He is our king, as we've it was so uh, deeply um, told to us through the worship songs, through the things we read today. But there is a reality that in the history of the Bible and what we are a part of, we're in a part of that history right now as we sit here in Scotia today in Schenectady County on October 30th. We're a part of that history unfolding, but it has not been completed yet. The thing I'm sure of is that I follow Jesus Christ. I've given my life to him. I desperately need him every day to forgive me and sanctify me and make me more and more like him. And that in this journey, it will be complete when I'm done on this earth and I get to worship him forever. And I get to be in his presence forever because it's about him and not me. But there are these eschatological, I nailed that word the first time, this idea of eschatology, which is the study of last things. And this is what we're going to see represented in this passage in Daniel, that God is giving Daniel uh, imagery and words and directives about what will happen in the future. Not only for him and his people who are in captivity, but it points to um, other things in, in the future. And then it, tied to that is this apocalyptic writing. Okay? Apocalyptic writing is an author who receives a vision of the end times revealed by an angel or a heavenly messenger, okay? So there's a, a defining piece of it. So we're going to see in, in what Daniel experiences is that we're, we're entered into this whole discussion about what, is the end, what do the end times look like? Is it, you know, Kirk Cameron and what was the book series called? Left Behind? Is it that whole thing? Is it something different? Um, so uh, we're going to get into that in, in just a minute. But before that, for the next hour and a half, no, I'm just kidding. Um, go to the next slide, Zach. Um, this is one image of hundreds, and I know it's blurry. All, all this to say there's beliefs on pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, uh, post-trib, uh, pre-wrath, the millennium, Armageddon, um, the Antichrist, the second coming of Christ, um, what else is up there? The wrath of God, the rapture, right? Those believers, when are we going to be snatched up into heaven? Is it like the Left Behind series? Is it going to happen before the tribulation happens, after? Some of you are sitting here going, what the heck are you talking about? And I'll be honest, I have strayed away from these kinds of terms and arguments and discussions and even passages of Scripture that point to them because I, it hasn't been a main thing for me. It, it's not my type of discussion. Number one, because the words are really hard to say and understand. And number two, there's a lot of work to do right here and right now. Right? And so what I'm going to do is kind of simplify the conversation because I think to some degree Daniel does that in what he's written here. 
by not focusing on all of that. Though it may be important, it's not the main thing. And I want us to focus in today on what is the main thing. What is the thing that we need to be focused on more than anything? And you know what? If I'm following Jesus faithfully and he raptures me before there's a lot of tribulation and trial in the world, not that there isn't already, but if he takes me away before that, praise God, I'm ready. But if I'm faithfully following Jesus and I have to endure persecution and arrest and maybe even my life being taken from me because of my faith, then I'm going to get to meet Jesus too. But if we're arguing on these secondary things and we don't focus in on the main thing, we're going to miss out on what God is doing and how he wants to use us now, right? So that all being said, there's been a lot of argument. I don't have all the answers, but I do want to point us in one direction. So let's look at Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read the first section. Again, this is following, not even following, this is as Daniel finishes his prayer that we read about last week. This beautiful prayer, by the way. He's praying for himself, for um, freedom, for um, salvation, for uh, forgiveness of sins. And as he's finishing up, it says this in verse 20, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had been in the vision in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So he's praying, he's finishing up his words, and suddenly the angel Gabriel appears. Okay? One of the defining points of, of apocalyptic writing is a heavenly messenger, an angel. Guess what? Here it is, right? Verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Love that phrase. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So I'm going to stop right there. He shows up. The angel Gabriel shows up as Daniel's pouring out his heart to the Lord on behalf of himself and his people who are in captivity, but he knows that season of captivity is coming to an end soon. He doesn't know the details of what's going to happen or how it's going to unfold, but he's praying for his people. He's praying for himself, and God responds, and Gabriel enters in. It's almost like if we were to, to really be praying together as a church this morning and suddenly, I don't know, out of the ceiling, some, just a being appeared before us and said, God has a word for you, that would be pretty awesome. And it would make, I would have someone to ask all my questions to about what's happening in this world and he would have an answer for me. Gabriel had an answer for Daniel, although there's a lot of questions about what all of those pieces meant. So we're going to get into that now, starting in verse 24. Before we do that, well, let me say, verse 24, the angel Gabriel says this, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. So before I go through that all the way, seventy weeks... I'm going to ask you a very difficult question. How many days are in a week? Seven. Brandon, I, I already know you're a smart guy, but then you say there's seven days in a week. Everybody agree with that? Okay. How many years are in a decade? Ten. 
right? So if um, someone in this room were four decades old, how old would they be? 40, right? My wife had her 40th birthday yesterday. <laughs> I'm only 39. So, so we use these terms to define a, a set amount of years, right? Or a set amount of time. So a week would be seven days, a decade would be 10 years. Part of the problem is what we're reading happened a long time ago, and when we throw out terms like several decades ago, we as Americans in our culture understand what that might look like, 70, 70 years or so. But in their time when they throw out this word weeks, obviously translations and everything come to the point where it looks like most people agree that the word week here actually represents 70 years, called a heptad or heptade or something like that, a fancy word. So that messes us up, right? Because when I read this, I see 70 weeks, 70 times 7 days equals 490 days, okay? But when, when they're using this word weeks, most scholars say that it represents 70 years, so 70 times 70 years would be? 4,900 years. Yes, that's what I meant. Did I mention I'm a Bible scholar and a mathematician? So let's keep that in mind as we go through this passage, okay, when they use the word weeks specifically. So the angel Gabriel says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall, make, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, we good? We'll go home, we'll go home now. All right. Raise your hand if you're confused. Okay, good. We're in good company, right? I want to start with, with this, this concept as we dig into 20, verses 24 through 27. Um, raise your hand if you've been to a wedding before. Okay, most of us in this room, looks like all of us have been to a wedding. All right, the bride and the groom get up and they stand in front of each other with someone officiating the wedding. And what do, what's kind of the turning point or the culmination of them facing each other? What, what do they do with one another? They, they, share, they exchange vows, right? And then the kiss happens, whoever said kiss. Okay, all right, so they exchange vows, and a vow is a, a proclamation to each other, to all the witnesses there, 
And in most cases, or we would hope that it's also a proclamation to God saying, this is a covenant we're making to one another, right? And what are some of the terms that traditionally those vows include? What is it? Love, honor, obey. Sickness and health, for better or worse, right? And on that wedding day, at that ceremony, doesn't it just make your heart feel good? Okay, maybe just mine, but, right? Because they're saying all these nice things and the right things to one another. And then most, most weddings, what happens after that ceremony and after the kiss and they, they walk down the aisle, what do we all go do? We go dance, we celebrate, right? Together because it's a great thing. We're celebrating what God has brought together. Now, take that moment and let's look at that same couple through a new horizon, a new viewpoint, maybe a few years later they have their first child. And if you're a parent here, you know where I'm going to, right? So the vows here on the wedding day are one thing. The vows here when that first child arrives are a whole nother thing. Parents agree? Right? Because that child now changes things. It changes the vows, the words that were said don't change. But how we look at those vows may change, those words, right? Then, you know, maybe the second child comes, and maybe, there's, maybe that child's born with Down syndrome. Now those vows take on a whole new perspective, don't they? There's a job loss, right? Um, child graduates, graduates high school, goes on to college, a whole new view of what those vows mean. You grow old together, and then a disease comes to one of, the, one of the couple, right? Those vows take on a whole new view. What I'm, what I'm getting at and trying to use an example is that when we look at this, I'm going to dig into some very practical realities of what the, these verses meant for Daniel and his people in that time at that moment. But then it's probably, because we've seen it over time, it's also going to have an impact and fulfillment in different ways hundreds and hundreds of years later, even to our day here. Another way to look at it is this. Imagine, imagine we believe in a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? Imagine they're in heaven and they're around the kitchen table. Okay? I'm simplifying things quite a bit here, so please forgive me. But simple minds need simple things. So speaking of me, not you by the way. So they're sitting around the dinner table with a jigsaw puzzle, right? Anybody ever done a puzzle before? Okay. <clears throat> um, it's very similar. For me, it's very similar to Scrabble, and I'd rather throw it than actually work on it. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit around the table, they have this jigsaw puzzle. They know. What do you do with a jigsaw puzzle usually? You have the, the box with the picture up, so you know what you're putting together. So because they're God, they already know what, what the picture looks like. And they actually created the pieces in the way that they need to put, be put together. But they're putting these pieces together. And they're putting this whole picture together. His kingdom. God's mission here on earth. They know what the end result is and what the picture looks like. But day by day, moment by moment, they're putting these pieces together. What we like to do, what I like to do, 
is I want to be at the table with them and know where my piece is and how I fit into the whole picture, right? So I want God to tell me what, what my will is in his picture rather than saying, God, let your will be done. Let me, let me be faithful to you. So throughout time, we have the ability to look at passages like this and say, I need to have it all figured out. I need to know what my piece in the puzzle is. God, you better let me in at the table. Or we can say, I can see pieces of it. I can take the application to my own life, which I hope we'll see today. But at the end of the day, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you are God, not me. Help me to know, uh, be in line with what your will and purpose is, not try to make you um, do what I want done what my will and purpose is. So with that view, with those examples in mind, there's moments where we have it all figured out and we know those vows are perfect. I know in this moment kind of what my piece of the puzzle is because God's given me very clear direction. But then new things happen throughout time, throughout relationships, and we've got to constantly come back to the fact that God is the center of the picture. And I've got to say, God, not, your will, not my will, but your will be done. Help me to be faithful in the midst of not knowing all the details. And I believe not only for Daniel, but for us, what we can gain from this is that understanding that, that we need him. And we don't need, he doesn't, we need him. Let me just say that. So let's go to verse 24 because there's six specific things I want to pull out of here. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish, trans- to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Just right off the bat, what do those phrases remind you of? Jesus, right? I love that throughout the Bible, there's all of these images that point to the main picture, which is Jesus, right? And that's what I really want us to pull out of our time together this morning, is that it is about Jesus. There are details, there are secondary things, and, and we can talk about those, but don't let those divide us or prevent us from the main thing, which is Jesus, okay? So, um, Keep your finger there. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy. Paul writes about Jesus quite a bit. <laughs> and he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I think this will be on the screen too, starting in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the love, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor 
and glory forever and ever. Amen. I love Paul's acknowledgement of the fact that he is not the center of the universe, that he's not the one that all Christians should be coming to. Christians are made, these believers are made Christians because of Christ, because of what he has done. He's come into the world to save sinners, and Paul acknowledges he's one of the worst. Many of us can say that too, right? Then you look at Hebrews chapter 10, and the writer of Hebrews says this, and every priest, he's talking about the temple worship and sacrifice, and every priest stands daily at his, being God's service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. So they're, they're just trying to manage their sin by offering these sacrifices. That was Jewish culture. That was the temple worship. Then he says in verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Turn back to Daniel chapter 9. So these are some of the, these are the six things we can pull out of verse 24. To finish the transgression. So there was this promise by the, the angel Gabriel to Daniel that there would be a, a finality to the transgression of his people. To put an end to sin. There would be an end to the sin that, that Daniel has been praying through for his people and I believe it's a, it's a message for us today too. To atone for iniquity, somebody or something would make atonement, would stand in the place of our iniquity and our sin. To bring an everlasting righteousness. To seal both vision and profit. So whatever was to come, Daniel understood that it would be a final, a final seal to both the vision and the prophecy that he was getting. And to anoint a most holy place or in other versions, a most holy person. So it all points to Jesus. These six phrases that are used in this first part of Gabriel's message to Daniel point to the fact that somebody was going to come to put an end to sin, to bring an end to transgression, to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness. We'll, we'll read about that at the very end to seal up vision and prophecy, this life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have the ability in hindsight to look back on this passage and say, we know Jesus came. We know what he did in his earthly ministry and then how he um, died for our sins and rose again and anoint the most holy place. It, it could be the temple, the Jewish temple. It could also point to the centrality of Jesus himself, that he is our final temple that he is the one we find hope in alone. And then it goes from there to getting into more of the details and the specifics that I believe Daniel saw some, some uh, not Daniel per se, but the people would see his writings, this inner counter, encounter that Daniel had with the angel Gabriel, and see over the next several hundred years the fulfillment of a lot of that. But then it also points to a new horizon in the future and a new horizon, right? Um, I think we can be, um, I think we can be disobedient and almost disrespectful. When we look at, let's, let's take the, the political season we're in right now 
and the doom and gloom and all the stuff on Facebook and in the media about how, you know, if Hillary gets elected, the end of the world's coming. If Donald gets elected, everything's going to fall apart, the end of the world, right? One of them's going to become the Antichrist, and, and we start to vilify these individuals in this, this process. And I think we, we do a disservice to the millions of Christians from Daniel's day all the way through that have lived in horrific trial and tribulation. Today, there are going to be hundreds, if not thousands, of brothers and sisters in Christ that look very different than us, that are in very different circumstances, and will literally have guns at their head or knives to their throats, and they must choose in that moment, will they say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ no matter what happens to me? You think maybe they think the end of the world's coming? Now, is our election important? Absolutely. Do we need to go out and vote? Absolutely. Here's what I'm saying. Let's go do that with awe and reverence and thanksgiving, saying, God, you are king. And whoever comes into this position of president of the United States in nine days when we elect that next president, God, you are king on your throne, and you can use people and institutions and systems for your glory and your fame. And maybe, just maybe, we should go in praying that whoever goes into that office is repentant, becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, is converted into someone who can use that platform for his fame and his glory. So I, I just want us to be careful that when we look at and talk about end times and, and what will happen in the future and when is Jesus coming back and and what, what does the rapture look like? And all these kinds of things that we don't lose sight of the main thing, which is today I need to be faithfully following Jesus. And today there's hundreds and thousands and millions of brothers and sisters that in the face of trial and tribulation and wondering whether or not they're going to have water, will they be faithful in following Jesus too? So a lot of this points to actual times and dates. Um, in verse 25, where Gabriel says to Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, which, which means in that, in that time that it would be fully completed if it had squares and a moat but in a troubled time, okay? So remember, they are in captivity. They know from Jeremiah that there would be an end to that captivity and they would return to Jerusalem and they would be able to rebuild their temple. And so when he says in verse 25, from the going out of the word to restore, Technically and historically, it looks like it points to the word in, in Ezra. You can read that in Ezra chapter 7. Um, but the Persian ruler Cyrus gave a proclamation that they could go back. Ezra could lead going back to Israel and start the reconstruction of the temple. And he had sort of a false start, and then Nehemiah would come and rebuild and finish the temple. And that happened... That word came in 457 B.C. So now if we follow that 483 years from that point, we're at A.D. 26. And again, a lot of history 
for most of us, we know that B.C., before Christ, it has some other definitions, but there was the years before, and they counted down to the point of Jesus coming to earth, and then from there, we've been counting up since then, right? So 483 years gets us to the year 26, and that happened to be the year that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. So there's almost this figurative imagery that's built in that not only will it happen um, technically and um, in reality that the temple would be rebuilt, but there would also be a temple in Jesus that would come too. Verse 26 says, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. It speaks very clearly to this, this, the person of Jesus Christ, that he would be cut off on that cross at Calvary. What did the father do? He turned his back on the son. In that moment in the history of time, Jesus had to take on the full weight of all iniquity, of all sin, of all brokenness, all shame in himself so that we could have him as our final sacrifice. And that today we're not having to bring sheep and goats and lambs and all this kind of stuff to church, slaughter them on this stage, and then we get to freely worship. Jesus was it. He was the final sacrifice that allows us to be who we are and where we are today. The prince that is um, alluded to here in this passage um, is not Jesus, um, but many believe that it speaks to the Roman armies under Titus that destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. So after Jesus has been um, crucified, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, then became, became this amazing work of um, the, uh, the Christians kind of growing um, among that time in, in Israel and then throughout the rest of the world. But in AD 70, um, the Roman armies came in and destroyed the temple. And you hear these words of desolation, of conquest. And we don't know for sure, but it looks like it alludes to the fact that Titus and his Roman armies brought, in verse 27, the one, he is the one who makes total desolation. But it also kind of points to, or could point to, this is a question um, of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus died on that cross, what happened to the curtain at the temple? It was ripped from top to bottom, right? By God, that was no human hands that happened. And maybe that was the removal of this divine blessing and, and this desolation would come on the, the people of Israel. It's hard to say. There's a lot of questions we can ask Jesus when we get to heaven. Um, I have a lot of personal questions I want to ask him, but guess what? I'm probably not going to be worried about the questions when I'm busy wor worshiping the King of glory, okay? But we can wrestle with it here on, on earth. Could also be kind of this distant, foggy prediction of the rule of the Antichrist. Again, getting into all those end time ideas about the end of all things. He goes on to say... Um, in verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. 
So if you're into the end time stuff and you're smarter than me, um, you probably know a lot more about the arguments around all of these symbols and time frames and details. And they are important to a degree. But the most important thing is what the angel Gabriel points out at the beginning, is there is a rescuer. And then what he says at the end is that the desolator, the one who brings desolation, is going to be killed, done with. There is a great victory that comes in Christ. And we see pieces of it in our own hearts, in our own families, in our own world now. We have throughout the history of time. And we will in the years to come, whenever that final time comes when Jesus comes back to take us. But I would say that we spend too much time arguing about the wins, when it will happen, how it's going to happen, how am I going to be ready and protect myself, and all those kinds of things, rather than the what? That Jesus is victorious. He has come, and he will come. There will be battles, but the war is finalized already. There are battles that we have to fight. Some we win, some we lose. Some that Jesus looks great in, and some that maybe we're sitting there questioning whether or not, where is God in all of this? But if we read Scripture, we trust the truth of who God is, how and why he sent his son Jesus Christ, and the power and comfort in which he gives us through his Holy Spirit. Based on this word, we can see through the mess and the questions and the mysteries to a hope that we have that empowers us. So here's where I want us to land this morning. Go to that next slide. The main thing, and the first thing is this that Jesus is Savior and King. And I love um, how it's written here, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is Romans chapter 3. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we are justified by His grace as a gift, his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We've got to focus on Jesus as our Savior and King. You are not Lord and Savior of your own life, your own family, your own neighborhood. We all need Jesus, which is the second point. So Jesus is Savior and King, but we need Jesus and people need Jesus. If everybody is broken and sinful, then we need a rescuer, just like the one that's promised here in Daniel chapter 9. And people around us need a rescuer. And Jesus came and said to them, this is Matthew chapter 28, just before he ascends to heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? To Jesus. And then he tells his followers, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Not only do we need Jesus, not only do we need to grow as disciples, other people also need Jesus and need to grow as disciples. What I really don't like about this passage, which is very famous to any of us that have been in church a long time, is that he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. He did not say, get them to raise their hand and show up on Sundays. He said, teach them, which means to invest yourself in their lives to grow, so you grow as a disciple and others grow as disciples. It's not just about conversion and raising your hand and putting money in a box and singing some songs on a Sunday. It's about whole life discipleship following Jesus, which we need and which others need. And then the last point is this. We're going to be with Jesus. And Paul says it while he's in prison, writing to the church at Philippi. For to me, is to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Remember, he's in prison, and yet he's still laboring away for the Lord. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Anybody ever feel like that? I'm tired of this world. I'm tired of my life. Let me just get out of here and be with Jesus. For that is far better, Right? I love my family, but Jesus is better. I love this church family, but Jesus is, Jesus is better. I love my job, but Jesus is better. So that's my desire, but, he says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, what we just read in Matthew chapter 28. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me, in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because my coming to you again. So the main point is Jesus. The final point is Jesus. The only answer is Jesus. And I, I'm sorry if I didn't, if you came here expecting some clarity on the end times, I don't have any for you. If... Um, for hundreds of years, Bible scholars have been arguing and discussing this and um, splitting hairs about when Jesus is going to come back, what the rapture looks like, when are we going to, when's this millennium thing going to happen. Um, those things may be of some importance, but they're not the most important. Gabriel, the angel Gabriel answered Daniel that the most important thing is that transgression needs to be done, done away with, that sin needs to end. And the only answer points to someone who would be Jesus Christ, God's only son, who would come into this world in the midst of our trials and tribulations, who's with us, he's eminent, he's here with us. Right? The message talks about this idea that in John chapter 1, Jesus moves into our neighborhood. He dwells with us. And at the same time, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit are transcendent and above time and beyond time. They know what the puzzle looks like. They created the puzzle. Let's trust him in the midst of whatever peace we're in 
whatever situation we're in, whatever part of the timeline of history we're in, that he is the most important, that others need to know that for themselves and for us, and that we're going to be with him. Whether we end up with swords to our throats or not, whether we get taken away before some of that craziness and chaos happens in our nation, even though it's happening in other nations, we're going to be with him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, there's, um, there's times in reading your word where I just wish it all made perfect sense. And that there was a five-step outline for every piece of history, for every situation I'm facing in my life, and that all the answers would just fit together perfectly. But you are a, a big and miraculous and mysterious God who created all things, who holds all things together, who knows already who will be elected next week, who already knows not only when I'm going to leave this earth physically, but knows the number of hairs on my head. God, you so intimately and profoundly love us. That in that love, you didn't have to give us all the details and every timeline and every date but more importantly, you came to us to rescue us and to show us that you are the center of all things. God, I, I repent today again of my doubts, of my fears, of my questions, of my assumptions that I think I know it all and have it all figured out. God, help me to trust you in faith that you love me so much that you would not only come, but you would also take my place on that cross and that you would sit on your throne for the last couple thousand years, drawing me and millions and millions of others to yourself so that on that day, whenever it happens, we will be with you in glory, worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords forever. As we come to the table this morning to take these symbols, this bread and this juice as symbols of your body and your blood that was poured out so we could even be here today, I pray we do it with great awe and respect, adoration and thankfulness. May you receive glory and honor through our hearts and our lives today for those that are not yet believers here today. Jesus, I pray that they would accept the invitation now that you are extending to them to leave a life of sin and brokenness and trying to figure it out on their own, to come to Jesus, the King of all glory, the rescuer of our, rescuer of our sin, and the forgiver of our brokenness. Bring us a new life today in Jesus' name.